From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Disney historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer, good friend and world traveler Craig Williams. <laughs> Craig, how are you? Welcome back to the States. Oh, thank you for for letting me return. I am <laughs> I am doing great and I am glad yeah, I, I wasn't to be finished back home. building that wall in time. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> But no, yeah, I'm good. It's uh, it feels good to to be back home. Uh, Sixteen days is a long time away. Don't let anyone tell you anything different. Well, you know that's that's uh, you weren't gone much less time when you did your big uh, Tokyo and China trip last yeah, um, year. So. And- and when Carol and I did our first Disney cruise, it was through the Panama Canal, and it was 16 days. No, so you know exactly where I'm coming from then. I loved it. I could have gone 16 more days. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, yeah. I love it, but it, it's one of those, the funniest parts of traveling is you, when you're then there experiencing it, you love every second of it, but you just kind of dream of home at the same time, too. But then once you get home, you just dream of going right back on vacation. It is mm-hmm. just so bizarre. I'll never understand it, but uh, I, I'm i glad I got to see Italy in my lifetime. I hope it's not the only time, but I, I'm glad that I could check it off the list. Your your photos were magnificent. Oh, thank um, you. I and Those are I, just I, the phone photos. I still have <laughs> the actual ones to go through, but... It's really hard knowing that you have like four hours of video to to go through and sit down and have to watch all of it just before I can start actually editing it and putting it together. So I'm going to have a rough couple months. Now, now Craig and I are putting together sort of a a Walt travel themed episode in the future. And Craig will talk a little more about his travels there. But Craig, what were what would you say were the the absolute highlights? Oh, man, that's for you. Then. I would say the big ones for me was in Rome getting to to stand inside the Colosseum. That was mm-hmm. one of those experiences you you well you can't put a price on it, but in my opinion you can't put a price on it. It was it was captivating uh the, the most moving moment, moment of the trip for sure was standing inside St. Peter's Basilica. And I, I'm not even a Catholic. I went to Catholic school, but uh, as just as a, a normal person going in, seeing the size and scale of this of the church in the Vatican was just unreal. Um, like I, I really can't even put it into words. It's something that you cannot imagine the scope and size unless well, you were actually in there. That's what I was wondering, because so many times when I travel places, when I've only seen photos or, or videos, it's places end up being larger than I imagine or smaller than I imagine. So that's what I was wondering. With the Colosseum, was it larger or smaller or on par I, with what you had imagined? Colosseum, I know, I it looks s- a little run down. It, it is very run down. <laughs> I would say the Colosseum was probably on par with... Mm-hmm what you would expect from it. I, I wouldn't say that was any bigger or any smaller, but St. Peter's definitely was just miles and miles bigger than I ever expected it to be. And uh, then on the, you know, during the cruise, got to see some great sights. Croatia was just absolutely incredible. We went to see a national park while we were there, getting to stand uh, in Sicily on Mount Etna, the largest active volcano on that island was just, again, one of those cool experiences that I will never forget in my life. And then getting to spend the last couple of days getting immersed in Venice was also just just spectacular. And 
you know, I getting to spend Easter Sunday in in Italy was one of those one of those moments that I will never forget. It's definitely a highlight Easter of my life. And yeah, I, saw, I saw you were wading through St. Mark's Square on the way to the Basilica. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we we were smart. We got there nice and early, like 30 minutes before the church uh, uh, service started, the, the solemn mass. And, you know, we were like sitting not kind of close to the back because you didn't want to get all up in the front and take away from the actual uh, Roman Catholics that are in there. But uh, yeah, we just watched people pour in like five minutes before it started and they all had to stand up in the back. Like, yeah, that's, that's why you uh-huh. get there early. Get that's everywhere right. early. That's that's what happened in our church too. <laughs> <laughs> Good. It's universal then. In, in our in our little little hometown church. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it is. But yeah, those that was that was the short list. I won't get into everything. I, I could talk for a week about it, but um, it was it, it was definitely an opportunity of a lifetime, and I can't wait for the next big one. Oh, it sounds wonderful, and and. And Craig, we'll talk uh, in a future show also about there. There were some Disney moments there, uh, that he and I talked about before the show. There truly were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, we're going to take you on a bit of a trip on this show as well. So, for those of you who listened to my history episodes on the Dis Unplugged Disneyland edition, you may recall my series, Sixty Years of Disneyland. And the last installment of that series ended at the end of the 1990s when the world was preparing for the turn of the 21st century and Y2K. Oh my gosh, that's such a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, oh clearly. Um, and, and, and the craziness that surrounded that. Oh, yeah. And if we thought, remember, we didn't know if we would have a civilization the next morning. Oh, I um, I remember right where I was on yeah. New Year's Eve of 1999 with a whole group of people, just everyone caught in that suspense of what is going to actually yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Craig and I um, are going to continue the 60 years of Disneyland on Connecting with Walt over the next several weeks. Um, in With this episode, it's 60 years of Disneyland, the new millennium. And so for about the next four weeks or so, we're going to cover the years 2000 to 2005. So the new millennium, the year 2000, for our younger listeners, um, also marked the 45th anniversary of Walt's Park on July 17th. On February 1st, Ryan Seacrest hosted the television documentary Disneyland 2000, 45 Years of Magic. Did you watch that? I, hmm. I, I think it sounds familiar, but... Mm-hmm. I don't remember Ryan Seacrest hosting it. Gosh, has he really been yeah. around that long? He has. Ugh. Yeah. He, he He's growing a beard now. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I figure it's because he's going bald. That's what guys do. They start growing beards when, they, when they're getting older and they start balding. I thought it was just because he finally, you know, reached 20. So he felt like he needed <laughs> to be more mature. Yeah. So, anyway, you're less snarky than I am. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and that was a pretty straightforward show. I, I thought it was a pretty pretty well done. Um, now, a new parade, 45 Years of Magic, premiered on February 16th, themed to the newly released film Fantasia 2000. And at each performance, this is the part I disliked, 70 part guests wearing tutus and animal hats are selected to join the parade. The parade music, Pomp and Circumstance, was personally selected by Disney CEO Michael Eisner after his emotional reaction to hearing the tune during his son Eric's graduation at Dartmouth. I remember that from trivia. (laughs) Yes, I know. When I was writing this, I thought, oh, we've talked about this. After two months, the soundtrack was replaced with a medley of Disney music. Now, Disneyland's 45th anniversary fireworks show believe there's magic in the stars. Now, at the time, the show was the most complex and lavish ever to be produced by the Disneyland entertainment team. And many guests formed an emotional attachment to the show. 
The main musical theme of the show was the song Believe There's Magic in the Stars, and it was composed by Don L. Harper. And this theme was interwoven throughout the entire show based on musical themes from Disney films and Disneyland to promote the message Believe in Magic. Uh, Most of the song was sung by Sandy Patty. Oh, Mm -hmm. odd choice. Yeah, well, she was very popular at the time. So I have a lot of um, Hallmark Christmas um, music with her as um, the lead. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my parents do, too. Yeah. (laughs) So um, now Disneyland guests experienced changes related to automobiles in 2000. Uh, Many Disneyland guests of today may not realize there had been two Utopia attractions. Well, technically three, but we're talking about two. The Tomorrowland Utopia and Another in Fantasyland. Now, Disney signed a sponsorship agreement with Chevron in October 1998, which would involve a major reimagining of these attractions that had been popular for generations. Both closed on September 6, 1998, and reopened on June 29, 2000, with updated cars and track. Now, Jason Holt designed the new car bodies, and guests could drive cars in three different humorously themed styles, cute, sports, and off-road, with paint that changed color with changing light. They were designed to have a slight resemblance to the talking autos depicted in the popular Chevron television commercials of the day. Hmm. Uh, The brake system was integrated with the throttle, so when the driver lifted their foot, the vehicle stopped. There was an accelerator pedal on one side for cast members to take control of the cars, and the cars were designed to shut down after two minutes of inactivity. And the initials on the license plate of each car was a tribute to the Imagineer. Now, the Fantasyland and Tomorrowland tracks were combined to create four travel lanes, and each track was approximately a half mile long, a few hundred feet longer than the tracks they had replaced. And at a top speed of seven miles per hour, it took cars approximately four minutes and 15 seconds to cruise the track. Now, during their trip, drivers and their passengers passed through a car park with an original 1955 Mr. Toad car and a 1956 Midget Utopia car. And that is the third Utopia that had once existed at the park. A portion of the track simulated driving off-road, and the queue was redesigned to look like grandstands, and guests passed by little dioramas featuring the Chevron cars from the television commercials. So, um, so the definitely a, a very different from the Magic Kingdom version. Oh yeah, absolutely. Of that you're used to, Craig. Yeah, very, very <laughs> different. So, I uh, ours is just worthless. <laughs> I mean, I I love Magic Kingdom, but yeah, uh, Tomorrowland Speedway is who likes it? I like the well, idea of it. Set, yours is set up more as a road race, and Disneyland's is is more of sort of a. Uh, an outing in the country yes and theme it so it's is, very different yeah no and it, it's incredible so mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I i love the idea of both the autopia and speedway i love the idea that kids can take control of their own cars i loved it back when i was a kid that was that was before you couldn't you know before there was really like go-kart tracks and stuff around that was that was the way to get behind the wheel. So I, as much as I dislike our Tomorrowland Speedway here in Magic Kingdom, I'm I'm one of those people who say it it still does serve a purpose for for children, and so it's it's something that's worth keeping around. Yeah, I I was always a proponent of bulldozing it until Bob Gurr was on Connecting with Walt, and he said exactly what you said. It's that it's the only attraction where children are in control of it. Yeah. And I thought, you know, he's right. So I've had a change of heart on um, Utopia. Every once in a while, we have to just give it to the kids. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) <laughs> now, now guests driving to Disneyland in their big cars also saw a change. On July 24th, guests arriving at Disneyland were directed to a seven-story Mickey and Friends parking structure. Uh, 
The structure held 10,250 cars and cost $90 million, financed by Anaheim hotel taxes and built by the city of Anaheim. And Disney leased back the garage and kept all revenue. Sweet deal here for Disney. Yeah. Um, um, the, uh, this, uh, and this would cause resentment as time went on. <laughs> Um, the structure featured speed parking, for which Michael Eisner claimed credit. So after paying their fee, guests drove to the top of the ramp, where cast members guided them to a parking space. And all spaces faced the same direction. So to guests to exit, guests simply drove forward and back down one ramp. And drivers did not need to change ramps, nor did they need to back up into traffic to exit. Uh, this didn't work. Uh, the structure was closed and restriped for traditional parking. What a stupid idea. <laughs> and you don't take credit of something before it opens. You take credit after when it works well. Oh, you should have heard the hype out here for this garage. I mean, Michael Eisner said it was the, it was the, the happiest garage on earth. I mean, it, oh gosh, you you just would have thought he poured the concrete himself oh man this thing i missed it by a year i was there in <laughs> summer of 1999 so very close but well and then there then there ended up being structural issues with it which i well, i don't get into in this but yeah uh, the 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 ramps and all that started to separate from the structure i'd heard that before i was gonna ask yeah. you if this was the garage that it happened in yes <laughs> yeah, so it had to be so there, there had to be significant repairs to it as time went on. Good. <laughs> so anyway, now uh, an, a, another another transportation um, I don't know saga at Disneyland <laughs> rocket rods. The headline attraction of New Tomorrowland 1998 was supposed to take guests on a very quick tour of Tomorrowland at breakneck speeds of up to thirty miles per hour. It didn't work. The attraction would break down daily. Um, budget cuts eliminated the possibility for bank turns, which required the rocket rod vehicles to break before every significant turn and causing the wheels of the vehicles to frequently come off the track. Uh, this constant accelerating and braking took its toll on the vehicles. Um, having to create the track for the rocket rods using the People Mover's previous track also created insurmountable problems. The structure simply could not support the strain that the high speeds of the rocket rods put on it. These issues led to the attraction being closed for much of its summer, its first summer. Uh, the attraction eventually reopened, but closed again on September 25, 2000 for a major refurbishment with the announcement that the ride would open in spring 2001 when it was expected that many of the attraction's problems would be fixed. But no work was done at all. On April 28, 2001, Disneyland executives finally admitted what Disneyland guests already knew, that the attraction would never reopen. As of this episode, the track still stands as the most visible and embarrassing reminder of the failure of New Tomorrowland 1998. <laughs> See, that's the, the nice part, that every single time I go to Disneyland, I still get to look up at that track and remember on that first trip I had in 1999 about how badly I wanted to go on Rocket Rods, but the line was like 90 minutes the entire day. And that's when it wasn't constantly breaking down, which happened yeah. over and over again. And then the goofiness, wasn't it a five car ride, five people per car ride system? It, like was, two it, in was, the back? it was, it was very strange. Yeah. The way it was set up. It was. And uh, yeah. The, and we missed our window. We were there a week before it opened to the public and then with our children and they were testing it and I thought oh my gosh this is so loud yeah. and then by the time we got back it had closed for its refurbishment and never reopened again wow. and so, so I never got that's probably one of the only Disneyland attractions I never rode well we'll keep pretending it's your white whale one day yeah. maybe you'll get it yeah maybe they'll put out a car and i can at least sit in it yeah <laughs> anyway but you know we have test track to thank 
for that too. True, because Goodyear, you know, they poured all their, you know, they, they poured all their money over into um, Test Track and everything, and they um, they canceled their sponsorship yeah. of Rocket Rods. Very true. Anyway, oh well. So well. Disney fans, you know, they love to collect things. And a new collectible was introduced at Disneyland in April when pin trading was introduced at the park. George Caligridis, vice president of operations at Epcot, attended the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan, to get ideas for Disney's Millennium Celebration that he was leading. In Nagano, he and colleagues happened to see a pin trading area. Few traders spoke the same language, but they were communicating perfectly. We thought, wow, what if we could create that type of experience with a millennium, Calgridis said. Pin trading was introduced at Walt Disney World in 1999 and at Disneyland in April 2000. George Calgridis was named Senior Vice President at the Disneyland Resort in 2000. On November 1st, the name of the Disneyland Pacific Hotel was changed to Disney's Paradise Pier Hotel. This 15-story, 502-room hotel provided guests with early admission into Disneyland and an exclusive entrance into Disney's California Adventure when it opened in 2001. Why, where was that entrance at? It was, um, it was in the back. You can still sort of see it. Uh, when you walk there, you'll see some gates hmm. that are there. That, I mean, the guests actually had to walk across the street. Yeah, yeah, obviously. And then, but... and, then and then into the sort of the back of the um, park. Hmm. I'll have to keep an eye out for it next time I'm there. Yeah. So. Anyway, but it it did those gates were closed pretty quickly. <laughs> so um, because it's it became backstage area I, and all that. I so. can understand. Yeah. Um, the Walt Disney Company auctioned off the original Disneyland sign on eBay in November. Actor John Stamos, the winning bidder, erected the giant D in the backyard of his home in Santa Monica Mountains. The other side was purchased by super agent Richard Kraft, who eventually decided he preferred the giant D from the Disneyland Hotel side. <laughs> so, so yeah, when you go climb up to go to the Hollywood sign, you can look down and you'll see... Um, You'll see the D in John Stamus's backyard. I've I've always looked for it. I can never find it though. Yeah. Now somebody point was it Mary Jo? Somebody pointed it out to me once. It, it would be Mary Jo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and Mary Jo's from our Disneyland show for folks if you if you haven't tuned in before. Um, now tragedy befell Disneyland in 2000. Uh, Christina Moreno, who's 23, and her husband had traveled from Spain for their honeymoon when they visited Disneyland on June 25th. Moreno immediately felt as if her head was rolling around when she got off the Indiana Jones attraction. The couple returned to their Hollywood hotel, and a short time later, Moreno passed out. She was taken to Cedar sinai Medical Center, then was transferred by air ambulance to Spain, but she never regained consciousness and died September 1st. Moreno also had a pre-existing aneurysm, and her family lawyer stated the attraction triggered her death. In one of the most highly publicized accidents that led to significant changes to attractions and operating procedures at Disney theme parks, four-year-old Brandon Zucker was badly injured on September 20th when he fell out of a Roger Rabbit attraction ride vehicle and was dragged about 10 feet trapped underneath another car. He suffered serious internal injuries including a torn diaphragm, liver, and spleen damage. When the four-year-old's body was crushed by the ride, he went into cardiac arrest and suffered brain damage. He was unable to walk or talk after the accident and was in a drug-induced coma for more than a month. The resulting physical and brain injuries affected him for the remainder of his life. Three months after the incident, the state's permanent amusement ride section of the Division of Occupational Safety ordered Disneyland to install doors on the taxicab cars of the Roger Rabbit attraction, as well as skirt the bottom of the cars. Zucker's family sued Disneyland in a case that was settled in 2002. 
Less than a year after the incident, incident, Disneyland revamped several of its safety procedures, such as staffing paramedics in the park, instructing employees to dial 911 directly in case of an accident. In the state's report about Brandon's accident, it had been determined that a ride operator first called a supervisor in the break room rather than 911. At the time of these changes, Disneyland officials stated the changes were not made because of the September 2000 incident where Brandon was injured. In 2003, Disneyland launched a kid-friendly safety campaign. Brandon would pass away eight years later at 13 years of age. With Disney's California Adventure under construction, the Walt Disney Company was feeling optimistic so optimistic that there was serious talk about the possibility of a third theme park. Disneyland president Cynthia Harris said, Creating the magic of a new Disney park requires us to take a long-term view. We are starting that process now, working with Anaheim residents, businesses, and civic leaders to identify opportunities that will ensure that the Anaheim Resort area remains a world-class destination for the decades ahead. The new park would be located on 78 acres east of Harbor Boulevard and south of Catella Avenue. Rumor had it that the third park might include a water park modeled after Typhoon Lagoon, combined with brand new attractions along with best Disney rides, shows, and entertainment experiences from around the world. Can't imagine having attractions mixed in with a water park. Yeah, that just on paper sounds like a terrible idea. I'm glad it never actually happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think they'd they'd get all the attractions wet. Yeah, well, it just makes no sense because then it's like, okay, well, I want to go ride this after I just went down a water slide. Well, mm-hmm. okay, well, you have to change and then get ready. Then you can go on that attraction. Yeah. But I don't want to. And it just, it, that would never work. I hope yeah. no one ever thinks that that could ever work. <laughs> this was the era when so many rumors for the third park were yeah. floating out there. So now by the end of 2000, Disneyland had welcomed. 13.9 million guests through its gates. Not a shabby the, number. No, not bad. Not bad. So. Now, at the start of 2001, Disneyland fans were focused on the expansion of the Disneyland Resort. So much so that the closing of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln for another refurbishment was barely noticed. After more than a decade of planning, the expansion was becoming a reality. Imagineering General Manager Timur Galen said, If Disneyland had started as the only development in a sea of green, it was now the only green in a sea of asphalt. (laughs) That was exactly the same line spoken by Disney executive Carrie Honeywell a decade before to describe the Westcott project. (laughs) I get it. It's a good quote. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. I had to think about it a couple of times. um, Oh, trust me. I I read it like four times before you got (laughs) to that part. Um, The first chapter of the expansion opened on January 2nd, 2001, when the 750-room Grand Californian Hotel and Spa welcomed its first guests. The hotel, designed by Peter Dominic, celebrates California's turn-of-the-century craftsman movement, capturing the artistic exploration of California's coastline, its Monterey pines, and redwood forests, the daring spirit of the state's first settlers. Sprinkled throughout the hotel are nods to Arroyo Craftsmen, the Mission Pioneers, and the Pline Air School of Painters. This was the largest structure to have been inspired by the arts and crafts movement. The check-in area is a tribute to San Francisco's Swedenborgian Church, which is considered to be the first arts and crafts structure in California. The hotel also houses the award-winning Napa Rose Restaurant and the Storytellers Cafe. So, now, Craig, when did you, was California Adventure open when you first visited? No, no, it was it when I came. That was in '99 in the summer. So, from what I remember, the parking lot hadn't even been closed at that point, or maybe part of it had. 
but there was still some extra parking. I, it was all very much blur because at that point, my only my only real knowledge of going anywhere Disney related was you know going to Walt Disney World and just being mm-hmm. transported on this different property right away. So then when we pulled up beside the Disneyland Hotel to be dropped off uh, right by where you catch the monorail immediately, that was like, it was all very much confusing right out the mm-hmm. gate. So, yeah, no, it wasn't, no big forms at least were up and running. If, if the parking lot wasn't completely closed at that point, then it was, some of it was closed and there was dirt being moved around. Yeah, I remember there's a huge mound of dirt for the longest time just sitting out there. I think it might have become Grizzly Peak at one point. <laughs> so, um, it would have been easy. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, the first chapter. Oh, I'm sorry, I already talked about that. On January 12th, chapter two of the expansion opened Downtown Disney. It was originally going to be named Disneyland Center, and this non-gated shopping, dining, and entertainment mall connected Disneyland and the soon-to-be Disney's California Adventure with the Disneyland Hotel. Of the 28 stores, there was a bookstore, a cosmetic stops, a travel agency, and a toy store. It featured a House of Blues, a Rainforest Cafe, a Ralph Brennan's Jazz Kitchen, and other higher-end restaurants, and an ESPN Zone, the first West Coast location for the chain of mega sports bars, and an AMC Stadium-style movie theater. The 40,000-square-foot World of Disney Store was the second-largest Disney store in the world. Wait, so after after Rainforest Cafe and ESPN Zone close, is is Ralph Brennan's the only original restaurant left, or was like Catal and those still there? No, Catal and they were all there too. Okay, okay. Those are some of the higher end restaurants. Oh, fancy. There. Yes, I know. I love Catal's. Oh, it's excellent. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, A new transportation center was designed by the famous landscape architect Martha Schwartz. Um, That also opened. It was soon dubbed the Christmas Tree Lot. According to a Disney press release, the East Esplanade was inspired by the gardens of the classical Baroque period, where episodic events or spaces are joined through a linear progression of the pedestrian through spaces. This it looked like there's a bunch of traffic cones painted different colors. Martha Schwartz was very open about the fact that she had never visited a Disney theme park, and many Disneyland guests felt this was apparent in the design. Then, with much celebration and festivities, the second gate at the Disneyland Resort, Disney's California Adventure opened on February 8, 2001, to an estimated opening day crowd of... 8,000 guests, a shockingly low number for a new Disney theme park. Just imagine if we could go to a brand new park opening for a Disney park nowadays with only 8,000 people there. That would be an absolute dream. More than 8,000 people probably showed up in the first hour of Pandora. I was just going to say that. I'd say 8,000 people were in that tiny little land. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in his dedication, Michael D. Eisner, chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company, said, To all who believe in the power of dreams, welcome. Disney's California Adventure opens its golden gates to you. Here we pay tribute to the dreamers of the past, the native people, explorers, immigrants, aviators, entrepreneurs, and entertainers who built the golden state. And we salute a new generation of dreamers who are creating the wonders of tomorrow, from the silver screen to the computer screen, from the fertile farmlands to the far reaches of space. Disney's California Adventure celebrates the richness and the diversity of California, its land, the its people, its spirit, and above all, the dreams that it continues to inspire. Who would have guessed that the dedication speech was better than the park was when it opened? I, I know, really. They should have put as much time into yeah. planning that park as they did writing this speech. Oh, yeah. I wonder if it was the same speech for Westcott. It's a beautiful speech. It's, it is. It makes me want to go to that park. Yes. Um, maybe not that particular one. Yeah, the, the idea of the, <laughs> yeah, the, the, idea the speech of park. 
<laughs> um, Imagineer Barry Braverman, who was the creative leader for the project, wrote an opening day press release. California represents fun, celebration, excitement, diversity, and freedom. Walt Disney Imagineering, um, executive producer for Disney's California Adventure Park, Barry Braverman said the newest and in some ways most unusual theme park in the Disney family. How did Imagineering, the design and engineering division of Walt Disney Parks and Resorts, tackle the creation of the new park? First thing, we threw out the rule book, Braverman explains. The park is divided into three primary lands, Golden State, Paradise Pier, and Hollywood Pictures Backlot each layered with myriad-themed experiences that celebrate the California dream. This is a park that is very open in its views, says Braverman. You can stand at the park's entry plaza and see the gateway to Golden State. You can see Grizz California Grizzly Bear Icon high atop Grizzly Peak. You can see the gates to Hollywood. You can see Paradise Pier's massive roller coaster, along with so much more. Here we have a park that embraces visual intrusion and turns it into an attribute that draws guests into the environment and the excitement happening throughout. The challenges creating such a park were formidable. When we started working on it, there was a tremendous amount of suspicion in the air because it was so different, Braverman recalls. This wasn't to be a theme park in the traditional Disney sense. While Disney's California Adventure was designed in broad scope, it also maintained a unique intimacy, according to Braverman. You can navigate easily in this park, and in that way it feels intimate and understandable. Then as you wander into an area, Hollywood Pictures Backlot, for example, you become immersed in that experience. There's a combination of comfortable large view and overpowering short view that happens. He goes on to explain, Disney's California Adventure was planned to enhance, not compete with, the Disneyland Resort experience. Frankly, if we had tried to compete with Disneyland on its own terms, we would have failed. Disneyland is a classic. It's the original, and it's had over 45 years to evolve into what it is today. We wanted Disneyland's sister park to be a really different kind of place, telling a different kind of story. And I think we've really succeeded in doing that with Disney's California Adventure. Doesn't that sound fabulous? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Braverman should have just stopped talking after the first sentence. He did, did he stay long with Imagineering after that? <laughs> I oh, I think he might have gone on to explore other opportunities. <laughs> I could imagine. Oh my gosh, that's if you have to explain it that much, then you didn't do your job. <laughs> well, they did not succeed, and it was reflected in the park's attendance numbers. Park guests and critics were harsh. Disneyland executives had planned for tens of thousands of Disney fans to visit the park on its first official day, but only a few hundred showed up for the opening ceremony. The problem was the park had soft open to Disneyland's annual pass holders a few weeks before, and the negative reviews about the park's lack of theming, mediocre details in architecture, and generic off-the-shelf rides spread online through Disney and theme park discussion forums. You think there was anything on the Diz about that? Oh, I, I guarantee it. <laughs> I'm actually, I really want to go back and, and check now. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I can remember seeing stuff about it opening up, whether it was in like the Disney magazine or, uh, you know, some of the websites that were around back then. And, you know, a lot of the focus always showed Paradise Pier, but specifically California Screamin'. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and then a little bit of the Malibuomer, but a lot of California Screamin'. And so that's that's what seemed cool about it. And, and Grizzly, uh, Grizzly River Rapids, like those, yeah. those both seemed awesome. They just, they, they kind of just glossed over the rest of it, though. Yeah. 
Well, John Cora, who is the senior executive responsible for the operational design, programming, layout, development, and pre-opening plan for the $1.6 billion Disneyland Resort expansion project, he led a staff of engineers, analysts, marketing professionals, business planners, and operations personnel directly responsible for the creation of Disney's California Adventure, Downtown Disney, the Grand Californian, and the Mickey and Friends parking structure, said... Disney's highest priority in developing the park was to keep costs down. Well, I think they're successful there. Of the $1.6 billion, it is estimated $650 million went to building Disney's California Adventure. Cora said, part of the problem is Paul Pressler came from retail. He thought retail and still thinks retail. We spent enough money overbuilding retail and food to add three or four major attractions to the park. That's insane. I mean, it's okay if you overdo it on the retail, but only if it's because you're going to have different unique items in all the different retail environments. If it's the same crap you can get anywhere else throughout the park, What's the point of building all of those extra stores? Like, oh, I, I'm, I'm never like that would be like going into a park today and seeing the 2018 shirt. Uh, yeah, I'm dating this on the time period, but seeing a 2018 shirt and being like, I have to get this right now because there's a chance I'm never going to see this again. <laughs> mm-hmm. You only have to go to a Disney park once to realize <laughs> that that is not true. And I I will give California Adventure credit to this day that there are some cool things, like especially um, I I love the the one shop right across from Soren that has a lot of like Smokey the Bear merchandise and stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, that they have found their way to get some unique items in there. But come on, Disney's Disney. You don't you don't need a bunch of the same shops selling the exact same thing all over the place. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what made shopping at Disneyland, especially when I was younger, so unique was because, you know, and we've talked about this in the 60 years of Disneyland series, how the shops were all themed to that that realm. And you couldn't necessarily find if it was sold in Fantasyland, it meant it wasn't sold outside of Fantasyland. That's so cool. You know, and uh, and they're getting they've gotten back to that over the years somewhat. Yeah. So. Well, you know, after listening to all this fabulous write-up by Michael Eisner and Barry Braverman, I bet you can hardly wait to visit opening day of this (laughs) park and see what what did guests experience. And next week, Craig and I are going to do exactly that. We are going to take you and the few hundred of our closest friends that were there that day um, through a tour of the brand new... Disney's California Adventure. So so join us next time yep. for our walk through California Adventure 2001. Well, here we are. It is time again for this day in Disney history quiz for the week of April 14th. And we have our our returning contestant all the way from out west from um, the Diz West Coast team. We have our very own Tyler Crouch. Tyler, so you come limping back for more, huh? <laughs> I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. Let me at him. Let me at him. Right. All righty. So here we are. Yeah, had a bit of a rough go last week, but you know, I can just feel this is your week. Uh, it's electric right now. There's electric in, in my room. <laughs> it is. It is. All right. So for our friends at home, uh, if you want to play along, but remember no Googling or binging or yahooing or whatever, um, the rules are uh, if you choose not to hear the multiple choice answers and get it correct, you will receive three points. If you do want to hear the multiple choice answers, you will get two points for the correct answer. If you ask to have an incorrect answer, are taken away, you will get one point for the correct answer. Or if your opponent gets the incorrect answer, you can answer the question correctly for one point. All right, Tyler, I know you know the an- the, the, the rules here. So do you want to um, take the first question or hand it off to Craig? I'm going to take the first question. All right. Mm-hmm. 
Here you go. Okay, are you ready, champ? You ready? <laughs> How dare <Damn>. you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's okay. do this. All right. Okay. On April 14th, 2000, Disneyland changes its 45th parade music to a mixture of classic Disney music. What was the original score? Oh, man. Um, that's like in my blackout period of, uh, <laughs> of Disney. Like, I, I did not go to Disneyland during that time of my life or anything, so... I'm going to have to hear the multiple choice. Oh, I thought that's when you lived in the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) No. Okay, multiple choice? All right. A, a medley of music from Disneyland classic attractions. B, pomp and circumstance. C, the Disney princess suite featuring music from Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Pocahontas, and Mulan. D, music from the soundtrack of Fantasia 2000. So what was the original score for Disneyland's 45th parade music? Mm. Boy. Ah, I I can't imagine it's the princesses, but because that would be the entire parade, but I could be wrong, but I'm going to I'm going to have to go with the Music from the soundtrack of Fantasia 2000? I don't know. Yeah, I'm going with D. That's your yep. final answer. Yeah, yeah, final okay. answer. That is incorrect. Uh, okay. <laughs> I know that, that date, 2000, throws you off there, huh? It kind of did. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Craig, would you like to take a try? Uh, yeah, can I get the question and sure. all of the answers again? <laughs> all right. Sort of sort of blacked out there, huh? This I, it's just... Period. It's all of <laughs> Tyler's reasoning in there. It's just... I completely forgot it all. Okay. Yeah. Okay, on April 14th, 2000, Disneyland changes its 45th anniversary parade music to a mixture of classic Disney music. What was the original score? Was it A, a medley of music from Disneyland classic attractions, B, pomp and circumstance, or C, the Disney princess suite featuring music from Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Pocahontas, and Mulan? No, um, hmm, I will, uh, I, makes no sense, but I'll say pomp and circumstance. You know, it makes no sense, and but Michael Eisner chose that after attending his son's graduation. Oh it is correct, and it that had was my been, second choice. Yeah, and it had been used in uh, the Donald and Daisy Duck Noah's Ark themed sequence in Fantasia 2000. So I was half so. right. You were. You you were very, very close. But unfortunately, (laughs) you don't get any points for that. Uh. (laughs) Anyway, but yes, that was a a Michael Eisner choice there. Wow. Okay. And it changed very quickly. Okay. All right. Um, Craig, next question is yours. April 15th, one of the most popular episodes of Walt Disney World's well, I'm sorry. Let me try that at one again. <laughs> one of the most popular episodes of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color television series debuted on April 15th, 1962. It would also be released theatrically overseas as a short subject. What is the title of this episode? I think I know it, but... I, I, I'll go multiple choice. Right. Is it A, Disneyland Around the Seasons? B, Disneyland From the Pirates of the Caribbean to the World of Tomorrow? C, Disneyland After Dark? Or D, Holiday Time at Disneyland? Well, that was none of the ones that I was thinking. <laughs> um. <laughs> So I'm going to have to blind guess on this. I'm, I'm going to say Disneyland Around the Seasons. That is incorrect. Mm. Okay, Tyler, Tyler, here you go. Here you go. You can oh tie it for one oh point. 
One of the most popular episodes of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color television series debuted on April 15, 1962. It would also be released theatrically overseas as a short subject. Was it B, Disneyland? Now, keep in mind 1962. Disneyland, from the Pirates of the Caribbean to the World of Tomorrow. C, Disneyland After Dark. Or D, Holiday Time at Disneyland. Uh, see, I feel like you tried to tell me a hint with, uh, telling me to keep it in mind with 62. But I feel like the most popular one would be from Pirates to Tomorrow. But then you're... Hmm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting in your head there. Um... Because I don't remember seeing any, like, popular clips from... One of the more popular clips I remember seeing over and over again is him talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, but I don't know if this is what we're talking about. So, but I'm going to have to go with that. I'm going to have to go with the B, the Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. Which, which debuted, tomorrow. which was on television in 1968. Oh. So, anyway, it's actually... Episode 208, Disneyland After Dark. This was hosted by Walt Disney. The show marked the network TV debut of the Osmond Brothers, Alan, Jay, Merrill, and Wayne. It includes jazz great Louis Armstrong performing in Frontierland on the Mark Twain, um, <clears throat> 1950s Mouseketeers Annette Funicello and Bobby Burgess sing a duet, and teen idol Bobby Rydell also performs. And in a running gag, Walt introduces but is unable to attend all the highlighted attractions and performances being pinned down by an endless supply of autograph seekers, including one repeat fan with a whole lot of hats um, throughout the program. The Dapper Dans are also featured singing Carry Me Back to Old Virginia on Main Street. This episode will be released theatrically overseas as a short subject and in 2001 be included on the two-disc DVD Walt Disney Treasures Disneyland USA. It's also on YouTube and it is a really, really good episode. Okay. Alrighty. Okay, so uh, let's see. Um, Tyler, this is to you now. Okay. All right. Okay, April 16th. Although this film is still in production, Disney announces on April 16th, 1997, that a sequel to the film is also in production. What film is it? In 1997. I kind of think I know what it is but I don't want to just jump the gun let me yeah let me do the multiple choices because I All have right. an inclination okay is I, it pop I could be a hundred percent wrong let's find out okay all right is it a jungle to jungle B airbud C flubber or D Hercules? Yeah, so I was 100% wrong. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. I don't... It. I f see, I want to work through the answers, but I also feel like the more I work through the answers, the better chance Craig is going to have. So it's hard for me to... Well, you never but, know. You might be wrong in all your thinking. You might throw true, him off completely. No, you're right. You're right. That's true. <laughs> I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> but I just can't imagine Hercules was announced with a sequel in mind, considering that was kind of one of the, you know, Disney summer classics. Um, and I'm sorry, what were the what were the other choices again, sure, real quick? This is, this is April 16th, 1997. Yeah. It's A, Jungle to Jungle, mm -hmm. B, Air Bud, C, Flubber, or D, Hercules? You know, I don't remember there being quick turnarounds on sequels for any of these, so I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to have to say A, Jungle to Jungle. Final answer? Yeah. That's incorrect. Okay, Craig. 
Here you go. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... I, I'm going to take a bold guess on it and go with uh, Flubber with the idea that, you know, there was also sequels to to the original movie, so maybe they did the same with this one. Mm, yeah, maybe, but no. <laughs> um, you know, Tyler, go with your gut. Oh, it boy. is reported that although Disney's newest animated film, Hercules, is still two months away from debut in the United States theaters, a sequel is already in production. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, all right. Okay, Craig, April 17th. You're ahead by one. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, Expo 58, also known as the Brussels World's Fair, opens on April 17th, 1958. It is the first major World's Fair following World War II. Featured at the fair in the American Pavilion is the first Disneyland-style attraction to ever live outside the Magic Kingdom. What is it? Multiple choice. Okay, is it A, Disneylandia, Walt's collection of miniatures set in historical vignettes that would serve as inspiration for Disneyland's Storybook Land Canal Boat Attraction? B. Three Disney short subjects on American folklore, Paul Bunyan, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and Grand Canyon, connected with narration by Davy Crockett himself, Fess Parker, and Georgie Russell, played by Buddy Epson. After the film, guests are treated to an abbreviated version of Pecos Spill and the Golden Horseshoe Review. C. America the Beautiful, a live-action film in Sir Cararama. Or D, an interactive demonstration of the new audio-animatronic technology under development at the Walt Disney Studio, narrated by Walt Disney. The first Tiki Bird prototype was used in the exhibit. Uh, No surprise, I'm going to have to guess again, and I will guess C. America the Beautiful, a live-action film in Sirkar Rama. Final answer? Yes. That is correct. America the Beautiful, a live-action film in Sirkar Rama, will open at Disneyland two years later. Okay, that's two points for you. Okay, so now it's three to zero. Tyler, there's still room for a huge comeback. All right. Okay, April 18th. The Disney Studio holds a screen test on April 18th, 1957 for a relatively unknown actor for their new TV series. Who was the actor and what is the series? Uh, (laughs) Is it Craig's turn? I'm sorry. Or is it my turn? Is it my turn right now? Yeah, it's your turn. Didn't I just go with the mm-hmm. America the Beautiful? Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, you mm-hmm. did. I was just making sure. Yeah. No, I um, appreciate that because I've messed it up before, so I appreciate it. So, what year was it again? This is April eighteenth, nineteen fifty-seven. Okay, I'm gonna have to go with the um, the multiple choice. Okay, is it A. Fess Parker, who is in the series Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, Robert Loggia for the Nine Lives of El Fago Baca. C. Don Grady for the Mickey Mouse Club. He would go on the star in the television series My Three Sons with Fred McMurray. Or D. Guy Williams for the series Zorro. Um, let's see. That's, you know, a big issue is I don't know the years of any of these Disney classic um, kind of television shows or anything, so... This is completely out of my wheelhouse. Um, I guess I'm going to have to say, I think it was a Davy Crockett. Oh, that is incorrect. <laughs> dokie, Craig. I am like on a rampage of losing here. <laughs> yeah, you're going down that space mountain. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, that that, um, that little uh, Splash Mountain um, dive down. <laughs> I, I, I like both of those. Into the briar patch. Right into the briar patch here. But no, th- we're not at the last question yet. Okay, Craig, do you want to go for this one? Um, yeah, I'll guess... Uh, B. Robert Loggia? 
uh, Alpha Bucket. No, that is incorrect. Oh, okay. No, the Walt Disney Studios held a screen test for a relatively unknown actor named Guy Williams for their new Zorro TV series. When Walt sees the results, he will be convinced he has found his Zorro. Hmm. Okay. All righty. Okay, Craig. So you're still ahead with three points. April 19th. These celebrities make a special appearance in an afternoon parade at Disneyland on April 19th, 1996. Uh, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to go with multiple choice. And if I hear it, I will be happy. Alrighty. Well, I hope you're happy. Okay. A. Is it Fess Parker and Buddy Ebsen from Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier? B. Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy from Muppets Tonight on ABC? C. John Lasseter, Tim Allen with Woody, and Tom Hanks with Buzz Lightyear for the debut of Toy Story Funhouse? Or D. Original Mouseketeer Annette Funicello and 60s teen idol Frankie Avalon? Well, did not are hear. You, are you happy? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we make this joke a lot about me missing stuff with Pixar, and I'm going to have to continue the trend and guess a Pixar one and probably be wrong about it. So you're guessing John Lasseter, Tim Allen, Tom Hanks, and their pals? Yes. Well, you know what? You're consistent. <laughs> it is incorrect. <laughs> All right. Here you go, Tyler. So what celebrities made a special appearance in an afternoon parade at Disneyland on April 19th, 1996? Was it Fess Parker and Buddy Ebsen from Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy from Muppets Tonight on ABC, or the original Mouseketeer Annette Funicello and 60s teen idol Frankie Avalon? You know... I really, really do think that 1996 was one of those times when they were trying to bring back the Muppets a little bit. I am going to go with Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy. You know, they were trying to bring back the Muppets for that television show, but not hard enough. Because the show was canceled and they actually had the original Mouseketeer, Annette Funicello, and 60s teen idol Frankie Avalon. All right. Okay, but Tyler, you get one more chance here. Yay. Okay, here you go. Get on the boards. You right. actually, if you guess it, you could tie. If you That's go true. without yeah. the right. um, go without the choice here. Okay. All right. April twentieth. This new animated Disney television series previewed on the Disney Channel on April twentieth, nineteen ninety two. What is the series? You said animated, right? Correct animated Disney television series previewed on the Disney Channel on April 20th, 1992. So this is in your your era, right? I think it is, but I just... The problem is, is 1992, I don't think I was watching Disney Channel at that point. So... Um, yeah, I'm going to have to go with the multiple choice. Okay, is it A, Goof Troop? B, The Little Mermaid? C, Raw Tunage, or D, Darkwing Duck? Yeah, see, I was I was thinking it it might be one of those Disney Afternoon uh, cartoons, or, um, I mean, Goof Troop was considered Disney Afternoon, too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my so, children watched that. Yeah, Goof Troop and Darkwing Duck. I, I think it's... Hmm... Previewed on the Disney Channel. I'm going to have to go with Goof Troop. Yay, Tyler, you're, you did it. You did yes. it. We're so happy. <laughs> Two points. Yay. Yep. It pre- Goof Troop previewed on the Disney Channel, featuring the voices of Bill Farmer as Goofy and Dana Hill as his son Max. The series will start its regular run on Septem- in September on the Disney Afternoon. So you're right, a two-hour television programming block. There you go. Well, you, you know, you came out of this respectable, Tyler. Awesome. So, um, That's so, all I needed. Yeah. <laughs> so three to two. So very good. So it's still in Craig's favor, but but Tyler, I feel your get. I feel your luck is turning. Yeah, so I'll take you, the two. You, you have to be back next week. 
I will be back next week okay. because I have to take this guy down. He's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay, great. Well, we will look forward to, to the final challenge next week. Thanks again for having me. Oh, you're welcome. This is great fun. Yeah, so. it really is. Thank you. Okay. Welcome. Many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, Connecting with Walt. Uh, the Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dreams by Sam Genoway. And the websites, the Orange County Register, the Los Angeles Times, um, Disney Extinct Attractions, the Disney Parks Blog, the Disney Wiki, Laughing Place, and Yesterland. And I would also like to thank my lovely research assistant and wife, Carol Bowling, for her invaluable work locating the additional material I needed for this episode. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Diz Unplugged? Of course, you can find me on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and other random days of the week on things like the Disney World edition of the Diz Unplugged, the Universal edition of the Diz Unplugged, the Diz Daily Fix, here, there, everywhere, vlogs, you know all that. And then always, if you want to get in contact with me, I'm on Twitter at Teleclaster, and then you can find me at the same place on Instagram. But, Michael, what about you? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. At Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling that is. And you can connect with me and Craig on Connecting with Walt um, at Twitter. We're at uh, Connecting Walt. So join us there. We have a lot, a, a lot of interesting history uh, content pops up there. Craig and I pop up there from time to time as well. So if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes, including the 60 Years of Disneyland series, the, the early years, um, at disunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. And I plan to beat the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco on Saturday, April 14th so if you are there please be sure to say hello I'll have some connecting with Walt buttons too so thank you for making us a part of your day and remember I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man Walt Disney and his brother